0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sobgracechurch.ca. Well, today as we continue our Gospel Foundations series, we're going to begin by uh, looking at our mission statement If you have walked into this building or you've looked at your bulletin, you'll see that we have a three part mission statement summarized by We are awed by God, revealing Christ, and expecting the Spirit. Now, if you've paid a little bit of attention to our mission statement, you'll notice that it's an acronym um, A R E in R. uh, Break it down into the three parts awed by God, revealing Christ, expecting the Spirit. But if you've paid even closer attention, and perhaps applied a theological lens to this mission statement, you will have seen that it's not just an acronym, it is a Trinitarian acronym. Uh, the, the A, awed by God, is God the Father. We, we exist to worship God with hearts of awe, are revealing Christ, God the Son, as Christ is formed in us as believers, and we show the world and show one another uh, the beauty of Christ reflected in our own Um, Good works and our own faith. And then E, expecting the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each part of this mission statement reflects a different element of who we want to be as a church and who we want to increasingly become. Now, as part of our efforts to put our own mark on this building, you'll see that the walls in this sanctuary are quite bare right now, Um, We intend to put up banners over the next couple weeks um, that each reflect a different verse that uh, corresponds with a different phrase within our mission statement. And today I have the privilege of presenting to you the first verse that corresponds with the first part of the mission statement, awed by God. And that verse is Job chapter 26, verse 14. It's printed in your bulletins, but if you'd open in your Bibles to Job chapter 26, we'll be spending some time um, examining what this verse means and how it is meant to direct who we are as a church and who we want to become. Job 26, verse 14, this is what it says. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? Now when our leadership team was together a few weeks ago during our annual planning retreat, I remember the moment when Pastor Tim opened up his Bible to Job 26 and read this verse to us. It it took our breath away. It is is an astounding verse just as a standalone verse. Uh, and, And the reason why we've chosen it to represent this element of our mission statement that we are awed by God is this verse reminds us that as much as we may know God, What we know is but a whisper of who he truly is. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a few months or for a few decades. What you and I know is only a whisper of God's majestic glory. Now, we are thankful that we have a whisper because without that whisper, none of us could be saved. None of us could be forgiven of our sins. None of us could be adopted as the sons and daughters of God Himself. We need God to speak to us about the way of salvation that He has made for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is what He has done in the gift of His Word and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. But despite this revelation, the fact remains that all that we know, all the doctrine that we have learned, all the verses that we have memorized, all the experiences that we have had with God Himself, all of it is but a whisper. Because the reality is, we are not God. We are fallen, finite sinners. Our minds are not only limited by the fact that we are creatures and not the creator, but we're also limited by the fact that our minds are darkened by the cloud of our own sinfulness. Now, the fact that we only have a whisper. I want to make this clear. The fact that what we have is only a whisper does not mean that we must look beyond the scriptures. We must look somewhere else in order to know God fully. We must never move beyond God's word and the word of his grace, which is the gospel. Because his word has given us everything we need to know God fully, even as God fully knows us. We're not called to look beyond the gospel. We're we're called to look deeper into the gospel. Because it's in the gospel that God has most fully displayed the perfection of his character. Now this is what Paul means in Ephesians chapter 2. Some of you may be aware of what Paul says here. It's those wonderful verses where he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not by works, uh, but by faith. And then he says this, so that... In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, what we have may only be a whisper, but within that whisper is a universe of grace that we will never fully exhaust. If you are a Christian, then you and I are going to spend ages upon ages plumbing the depths of the riches of the gospel. And even then, after millennia have passed, we will only have scratched the surface because these riches are immeasurable. They cannot be measured by finite beings like us. And if you are not a Christian, if you're not sure where you stand with God, what you believe about him, God's invitation to you is come and see. Come and see what he has done in the giving of his son, for sinners. And as you do, you must remember that the glories of the gospel, they will never be exhausted. They won't be exhausted by a evangelistic tract with four spiritual laws. They won't be exhausted by a powerful sermon. They will not be exhausted by a lifetime of fellowship with God and his people. Those who are in Christ will spend endless ages being shown the glories of the gospel. And the reason for this is because the glories of the gospel reveal the glory of God himself. And who is God? Well, he is infinite. He is infinite. And we are not. When we die and go to heaven and we experience the future resurrection of our bodies and we live forever in God's presence, we will not be infinite We never will be. We will always be eternally finite. Only one being exists who can be eternally infinite, and that is God Himself. And for the countless ages to come, He will peel back the infinite layers of glory contained within this glorious gospel. And we will never grow tired of the grace that He has shown to us in Christ Jesus. Now, that's why we have chosen Job 26, verse 14. This verse reminds us that we, what we know about our triune God, about who he is and about what he has done for us in Christ, are but the outskirts of his ways. A whisper of the full thunder of his power. And the effect of this reminder is, is, is meant to leave us awed by God. It's meant to leave us shaking our heads in wonder at what God has done for us, in saving us through his son. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna spend our time together studying this verse. Because as much as we can benefit from reading a verse like this as a standalone verse and saying, well, this is what it means to me, or this is what it means to us, true, faithful, biblical reading seeks to understand what it meant to the original readers. We must not forget We must never forget that we have the privilege of reading the scriptures on this side of the cross. We can read all the scriptures from from Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament through the lens of the gospel and see how it points to Christ. But not everyone had that privilege. The original readers, and you could say even Job himself, did not clearly see how this verse, how these truths pointed to Christ, And so what we must always do as faithful Bible readers is seek to understand what it meant to the original readers before we then apply a gospel lens and see how it points to Christ himself. So that's what we are going to do. And as, as, as we do, I believe that we will come to a greater appreciation for this verse and for what it means to be awed by God. Now, if you've heard me preach before, you'll know that I like my three points. We're not gonna do that today. Uh, What we're gonna do is we're actually gonna zoom out and think about the big picture message of the book of Job, and then we're gonna zoom into chapter 26, and then uh, in application, in the conclusion, I will have a few points for you to consider. So we're just gonna dive right into the book of Job. Job, as many of you know, is a story of a rare kind of man, a man who is not only a great man, but he was also a good man. You know, usually you have one or the other, right? You have a great man who is internally corrupt, who's not a good man, or you have a good man who lives a very uh, uh, kind of standard, ordinary life. It's It's not very impressive from the outside. Job was an exception. He was a great man, but he was also a good man, Uh, chapter one tells us that uh, there was no one who was richer than him in all the the region in the east but at the same time he was a genuinely pious man he would offer sacrifices to God uh, for his children just in case they had sinned against God in their hearts he sought to obey God's commands and to live a God-fearing life and that's why chapter one actually describes Job as being a blameless and upright man but one day If you know the story, Job suddenly goes from having everything to having nothing. His vast animal herds are stolen. His servants are killed by by roaming bands of of robbers. A lightning storm burns up his sheep. But worst of all, he receives news that all ten of his children, who are gathered together in one house to celebrate the birthday of one of their siblings all die tragically after a great wind causes the house to collapse. And then to top it all off, Job catches a horrible skin disease that afflicts him with sores from his head to his toes. All of that happens in the first two chapters of Job. Job is one of the longest books in the Bible. It's 42 chapters. Two chapters all about all that happened. And the rest of the chapter is trying to process the question, why? Why? why did this happen? And what is God's purpose in all of this suffering? Now many things are discussed in those 40 chapters, but if we would highlight one thing that Job is, is ultimately about, one of the unique contributions that this book makes um, to the Christian life um, uh, compared to the entire corpus of the canon, um, we could say that it is about, ultimately it is about innocent suffering. It's about innocent Suffering. Now we know that a lot of suffering isn't innocent. For example, it may come as a result of our foolish choices. Foolish choices don't exist in the world of morality per se, in the black and whites of the world. They they exist in the grays, in the, well, that's not right, but it may not be good for you kind of world. There are choices, for example, like how much time we spend on our screens. This is something that I often think about because screens have had such a strong hold in my life for a long time. Now, some of you may have heard this, but I'm gonna, this has remained a, a, an experience that has continued to teach me things about who I am and where I find my identity and where I, find, uh, where I am spending my time. You know, Over the span of a year and a half uh, that ended in August of 2019, I was playing a game on my phone and I began very innocently. I began when I was bored one day. I'm just like, well, what's, what's on Google Play? And they offered me a promotion to download this app for free. It usually costs $10 and say, hey, download it for free. I'm like, hey, let's check it out. It's about Star Wars. I'm a Star Wars geek, and I, I played this game for a year and a half. And I'm not exaggerating when, it say, when I say that it had dominion over my life. And let me just give you one example of how that played out. It's the kind of game where you need to sign in at certain times in the day in order to get rewards. And you need the rewards to progress in the game. So if you want to compete with your fellow players and progress at the same rate as them, you need to check in. You need to check in regularly. And the thing is, they created some of those check-in times to be in the middle of the night. And I would tell myself, well, okay, I'm just going to leave that reward. I don't need to claim it. But my self-conscious self, growing in addiction to this game, couldn't help but wake up. And I'll be like, okay, I'll just open it and do this stuff and then try to fall back asleep. But then you couldn't sleep because you're thinking about the game. And I knew that it was causing me sleep deprivation. This silly game that means nothing. But I kept doing it. And that was foolish. And it caused me suffering. It caused me sleep deprivation so I didn't have as much energy for my family or for my church. But I kept doing it. Sometimes our suffering is the result of our foolish choices. It's not morally wrong to engage with games or screens per se, but that doesn't mean that those things are good for us. Now, I'm going to say this uh, because I know how many of you are raising children um, who are growing up in an age of the screens. Um, There's a professor from the San Diego State University, not a Christian as far as I know, but a psychology professor named Dr. Gene Twenge, and she's written um, many influential books about how different generations can be characterized. And she's written a book called iGen, you know, i like Apple, I generation, the generation born where, uh, a, a, from the day that they're born, screens are available to them through their parents' smartphones. Uh, she defines this generation as the age group between, uh, born between 1995 and 2010. Uh, perhaps stretching a little bit more to 2015. But that tends to be where the internet has blossomed and where uh, the internet has been brought into every moment of our lives through the advent of smartphones. She's done a lot of research on the effects of screens. And in her book titled iGen, listen to this long but revealing title, iGen, Why Today's Super Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood. I mean, that that is such an accurate representation of where we are with the next generation. This is what she says about screen time, especially with the iGen generation. She says, the results could not be clearer. Teens who spend more time on screen activities are more likely to be unhappy. And those who spend more time on non-screen activities are more likely to be happy. It's a very simple general conclusion, but as she engages with the research as a secular psychology professor, She's saying screens, in general, lead to unhappiness. And I think we've all experienced that. You know, it, with our kids, you know, we give them some screens and we take them away and then suddenly they're having a tantrum. But we keep giving them screens. Or, you know, we have some, some free time in our leisure time and we spend it on a social media posts and, uh, and we, we leave that time feeling more lonely and less happy than we were before we engaged with those apps you know, Dr. Gene Dr. Twenge actually cites other studies that draw the same conclusions about loneliness and about depression. The more screen time the iGen generation is enjoying, or perhaps not enjoying, the less happy they are, the more lonely they are, and the more prone they are to depression. It's quite clear, and it's increasingly clear, that our screens are bad for us when they are being used um, without limit and without a wise perspective And the younger we are, the worse our screens become, but we still do it. I mean, I still give screens to my kids, and I am still involved in our screens, and that is going to lead to suffering. Sometimes foolishness leads to suffering. Other suffering comes not from foolishness, but from sin. It comes from the morally harmful choices that we make. If you're a chronic liar then you're going to gradually see your relationships break down as your loved ones stop trusting you. Or if you're a young person and you build a habit of dishonoring your parents, you're never gonna learn that the, the, the essential um, lesson about adulthood that you don't know everything and sometimes you don't know what's best. And if you don't learn that lesson, that's going to lead to suffering. And if you happen to sin in a way that's also recognized by our society, that is, it is illegal. Then whether you are young or whether you are old, you will also face the suffering of going through the criminal justice system. Physical violence, fraud, uttering threats, using illicit drugs, it's gonna lead to suffering as you enter the criminal justice system. You know, I have seen this firsthand as a former defense lawyer. Um, See how this... System, as important as it is, it has the effect of tearing families apart. It has the effect of ruining people's reputations. It has the effect on young people in particular of completely redirecting the course of their lives and the opportunities that they have before them. Our sin can lead to suffering. Now some people may say, well that's only if I get caught. Or that's only if I don't hire the right lawyer. And that is true to some extent because the police aren't omniscient and your lawyers aren't omnipotent. But God is. God is omniscient and he is omnipotent and he knows everything that you've done, whether in public or in private and he will bring discipline to you. We suffer because of our foolishness, we suffer because of our sin. But sometimes, and this is what the book of Job is about, sometimes we suffer simply because we live in a fallen world. This kind of suffering doesn't have a moral cause. It doesn't arise out of our foolishness. Instead it comes to us in the mystery of God's providence and we don't have a clear understanding of why. This is what we could call innocent suffering. That doesn't mean that the person's suffering is morally blameless in terms of being sinless. Only one person could claim to be sinless. And that's Jesus. All of us, the rest of us, we've all sinned, and that means that none of us are completely innocent. But innocent suffering captures the reality that sometimes we suffer for reasons that are unknown to us. We can't trace it back to our sin. We can't trace it back to our foolishness. This is what the disciples learned in John chapter nine. Remember that story? Jesus is passing by a man who is sitting there begging, and he was a man who was born blind, And the disciples asked Jesus this question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You understand the assumption behind that question, right? They assumed that all suffering in this world had a moral cause. It came because either he sinned or his parents sinned, and now he's living through the repercussions. But in reply, Jesus says this, it was not in this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This blind man had spent all his life as an innocent sufferer, and he didn't know why. Why he was the one out of all the people in the world who would be born blind and destined to live a life as a beggar because he couldn't provide for himself. And he didn't have an explanation until Jesus gave his disciples that explanation, John chapter nine, It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. There is such a thing as innocent suffering. And no book in the Bible wrestles with the implications of innocent suffering like Job. And we need a book like this because, uh, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, innocent suffering is hard for us to come to grips with. You know, we're okay when the wicked suffer, when people get what they deserve, when the guilty go through the criminal justice system, they are living the consequences of their own foolish or sinful choices. But when it's the innocent who suffer, when bad things happen to good people, when children die, when a godly man dies in a car crash while the drunk who caused the crash lives, we can't help but struggle with that. You know, Pastor Tim prayed for this man on Friday, this pastor that we know in Brazil, whose son was just born with a serious heart condition. Well, you know, he's a young man trying to lead a church, a reformed gospel center church in Brazil. Why would God bring him this hardship? Why wouldn't God make it as easy for him as possible so he could just focus on the work of ministry? And in fact, last year, and I won't get into all the details, but the senior pastor who was leading that church died unexpectedly and tragically, and now this young man is left leading this church by himself. Why? Why does God do that? Why is there innocent suffering in the world? Innocent suffering is hard to accept. And that is why some religious systems actually believe that there is no such thing as innocent suffering at all. You take the Hindu concept of karma. You know, karma says that you get what you deserve. If you get get good, it's because you did good. If you get evil, it's because you did evil. Uh, it may not be what you did in this lifetime, it may have been what you did in another lifetime, in a previous lifetime before you were reincarnated into the pre, into the current life that you live. You only get what you deserve. And that is actually what uh, the Bible teaches on a general level, not about reincarnation, but about how the righteous are generally rewarded and the wicked are generally punished. You think about what God says in the book of Deuteronomy, when he's giving the law to his people through Moses? He says, if you obey my commands, it will go well for you. You know, your animals will be fruitful. You will have lots of children. Your enemies will be defeated. But if you do not obey, you will be cursed. And you will lose all that I have done for you to buy you this this vast and fruitful land. And that is what Job's three friends believed. If you know the story of Job, you'll know that after he suffers Uh, the loss of his wealth and his children and his health. His three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, come and try to comfort him. But they believe that he is guilty of some grievous sin against God because only someone who is guilty would suffer the way that Job did. The righteous prosper, the wicked suffer, and there are no exceptions but if you read your Bible carefully, and this is why we need to read not just a few verses, but we need to read widely, you'll know that there are exceptions all over the place, including at the very beginning. You know, Adam and Eve had two sons, a righteous one and a wicked son, and who was the one who was murdered? It was righteous Abel. You know, Jacob had 12 sons, and 11 of them were were jealous, angry, bitter people, and you had one who was receiving revelations from God. You who's the one who is thrown into jail for crimes that he never committed? It's Joseph. You had righteous Uriah the Hittite, you know, a Gentile who converted to the faith of, of Israel. He was a God-fearing man, served his master, King David, faithfully, but he is sent to die because his own master, his own king, lusted after his wife. Innocent suffering is all over the Bible. There are exceptions Everywhere, From the very beginning, they are there. But Job's three friends ignored this, and they held that all suffering was the result of foolishness or sin. So when Job suffers on that devastating day in which he lost his wealth, his servants, his 10 children, and his health, it didn't take long for his three friends to start pointing the finger at him. They arrived with good intentions to comfort and mourn with their friend. And for a while, they did pretty well. For seven days and seven nights, Chapter two tells us, they wisely sat with him and they said nothing. And that's sometimes what we need when we're grieving. We we don't need someone to just tell us things. We just need people to be present. And they did that well. But as soon as the first of the three friends opens his mouth to speak, things start going dreadfully wrong. Eliphaz in chapter four The first of the three friends, he says this Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Eliphaz is saying, Job, what has happened to you does not happen to the innocent, it happens to the guilty. And so as I look at what has happened to you, I can only conclude that you have some hidden sin that you haven't been honest with us about. You are guilty, and now you are suffering the consequences of your guilt. That's how Job's three friends viewed suffering. And they make a point of it by repeating it again and again through those many chapters in the middle of Job, emphasizing to Job that he must repent because he is a sinner, and his suffering is the result of his sin but Job is unwavering in his reply. He maintains his innocence and he declares that his conscience is clean and he rebukes his friends for their unhelpful and false theology. And the book of Job actually teaches us that he was right. He was right, his friends were wrong. Job wasn't blameless in all that he did. In fact, he needs to be rebuked by the end of the book uh, for justifying himself rather than finding his justification from God. But he was right in his conclusion that the suffering that he faced in the first two chapters of Job were not the result of his own sinful choices. Now that's the big picture view of Job. And chapter 26 falls in the middle of this discussion between Job and his three friends. And it comes at a time when Job is starting to get a little frustrated with his friends. And he's like, how much longer do I have to defend myself? So what happens when we are frustrated? Well, if you are like me, sometimes you get a little sarcastic. And that's what the first four verses are about. Don't miss the sarcasm in Job's voice. He says, how you have helped him who has no power. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. With whose help have you uttered words and whose help whose breath has come up from you. He's, he's saying in a, the most sarcastic tone he can muster. Did you guys really come up with all this yourselves? Well, thanks a lot. You know, you're being so helpful to me right now. This is exactly what I needed to hear. Job's not commending his friends here. He is mocking them. His words are dripping with sarcasm because here he is having lost everything. In the most, in the darkest moment of his life, Barely clinging to a will to live. And they're saying, You sinned! You sinned! Repent! You're just suffering what you deserve. Now, what he needs is his friends to grieve with him, to understand, to ask questions, and to comfort him. But instead, they are accusing him of things that he has never done. And so he vents a little in the first four verses. And then in verses five to 13, what Job does next is he he teaches them a lesson about theology. And the lesson he chooses to focus on is on the theme of God's absolute sovereignty. God's absolute sovereignty. That's what verses five to 13 are all about. The reason why he reflects on God's sovereignty are, are gonna become clear to us as we understand the text, but we're gonna dig in. And just so you know, um, whenever we're reading the Bible, we need to be aware of the genre, and the genre here is it's, it's poetic literature. We don't read these verses the same way that we might read one of Paul's letters. Paul's letters are about logical argumentation for the most part. Job is is drawing pictures for us with his words, using poetry to illustrate very simple truths. It's one thing for me to say God is sovereign. And it's a whole other thing for for Job to to, to use this kind of picture language for us to understand what that means and how to apply God's sovereignty to our suffering. So it's going to require a little bit of digging. Um, We're going to have to look at specific words, but it'll be all worth it in the end. And uh, before I I continue, I just want to commend to you this resource. I can't take credit for the explanation of this text by myself, I just don't have the tools and skills for that. Um, That's why commentaries exist. This commentary written by Christopher Ash, Christopher Ash on Job, Um, the subtitle here, I love it, The Wisdom of the Cross. You know, we think about these gospel-centered resources that help us to learn how to live in a way that is rooted in the foundation of Christ crucified. There are so many resources out there, and this this commentary on the book of Job is the finest, uh, this is what I've heard at least, the finest Commentary on how Job points us to Christ. And I am indebted to Mr. Ash for writing this commentary so that we could understand what Job is saying. All right, so back to our text, verses five and six. Job begins at the lowest place, the place of the dead. He says, The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. Now, Sheol here, Job says Sheol is naked before God. Sheol was the Old Testament place of the dead. When you die, you don't go to heaven or hell, you go to Sheol. It was only when, uh, I think there are hints of heaven and hell in the Old Testament, but, but Jesus is really the one who brought us the full revelation of what life after this life looks like. Sheol is the Old Testament place of the dead. Abaddon is the supernatural spiritual power who stands guard over that place. He is the spiritual being who stands guard in the place of the dead. So when Job says Shale is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering, he's saying that not even death can separate us from God's sovereignty. Not even death. God. God's sovereignty, his righteous rule and reign extends even beyond this lifetime so that none can escape his attention. Even the supernatural spiritual beings who dwell in that place of the dead stand vulnerable and exposed before God's piercing gaze. God is sovereign over the physical and the spiritual. God is sovereign over the living and over the dead. He continues in verses seven to 10 moving up now from the place of the dead to the ground and to the sky. He says, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He stretches out the north over the void. What, what does that mean? Well, the Hebrew word for north here is Zaphon. Zaphon, And there was a mountain, actually, in, in Old Testament times called Mount Zephon, Mount North. And that was what was seen by the pagan religions as kind of the gathering place of the gods and goddesses of pagan religion. You could say it was kind of like the equivalent of Mount Olympus in Greek mythology. It was the cosmic mountain of the gods. And what Job is doing here is he's saying that Mount Zaphon, the mount of the gods in the north, it belongs exclusively to the God of Israel. He is appropriating this well known picture of sovereignty and and rule among the pagan religions and saying, that all belongs to God. It's not unlike Paul saying that the statue to the unknown God, well, I'm going to tell you about who that is. He's taking well known concepts and bringing it into the worldview of the Jewish people. You could say, you know, long before the raptors ever said, we the North, Job was saying, God the North. Job continues by saying that God has stretched the north over the great void. Now, when we read the language of void, we're meant to recall the language of Genesis chapter one, when God is, is creating all things in the beginning, and the earth was without form and void. Well, God is stretching the north over the void, meaning that he is extending his sovereign control, his rule and reign over every aspect of creation. Nothing exists that is outside of his sovereign Control. Isn't this great? You know, like you read this by yourself and you're just like, what, what does this mean? But it's 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 ripe with meaning, and sometimes we just need help to understand it. Job then continues, he says, Well, God doesn't only reign, he also sustains. He hangs the earth on nothing. He hangs the earth on nothing in the second half of verse 7. He, has, uh, he keeps the earth spinning perfectly in place without physical structures. He is sovereign over um, the, 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 the mysteries of how the earth works in the universe. Then in verse eight, he says, he binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds. In, in Old Testament cosmology, there is water under the sky, and there is water above the sky. And so when the floods open up in the times of Noah, it says the windows of the heavens open, and the water floods the earth as God kind of rips open the firmament in the sky and lets the waters flood the earth. Job is saying here that that God is, is, is holding up these same waters with the clouds. He's painting this picture of God preserving the earth of fulfilling his promise that he will never again wipe away every living creature with the floods. He is holding it up with the clouds. And then in verses 9 and 10, he covers the face of the full moon. Well, the full moon there, you'll see uh, in a footnote, if you have uh, a Bible that does this, it's in the English Standard Version, the footnote says that can also be translated as his throne. And that's that's the interpretation that I'm going through. He covers the face of his throne and spreads over it his cloud. His, his throne is mysterious. It is unapproachable by common men and women like us. He is inscribed, verse 10 continues, he has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The circle here, the circle language, that picture always means that there are limits. It's meant to define the boundaries that God has put around creation to separate things that don't belong to one another. So the seas and the land don't belong with one another, the light and the darkness don't belong with one another, and he has put the appropriate boundaries in place so that all would function with order. And when we take these verses together, verses five to 10, what we see is we, we see a picture of creation as a place of order and boundaries, of rules um, and, and of God's power sustaining the order of creation. The earth is spinning exactly where it should. The flood waters are being held back by his omnipotent hands. Everything is as it should be. But then we get a surprise in verse 11. Job writes, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. The peaceful tranquility of creation's order is suddenly shaken up by God's word of rebuke. Job is reminding his friends that as much as creation is a place of order and rules and boundaries and limits and definitions and separations, the order itself is not God. God is God, and sometimes he chooses to shake things up to shake up the created order, to transcend what is created in the natural world. And sometimes he does that by bringing about suffering that is completely unexpected. This is Job's point. Yes, most of the time the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer, according to the moral fabric created by God. But that is not always the case. Sometimes God shakes up creation and brings about suffering in an unexpected and undeserved way. Job understood that suffering does not fit into neat little categories that are always predictable and ordered because God is God and sometimes he shakes the pillars of the heavens and they tremble before his rebuke. But why does he do that? Why does God act like this? Why create such order only to shake it up Well, the answer is found in verses 12 and 13. He writes, by his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Job is showing us that God shakes up the created order in order to defeat the enemy. The sea here is a picture of chaos and disorder which threatens to upend the the moral order. Rahab. You'll know her from the, uh, uh, the story about Jericho, the prostitute who helped the spies, but Rahab is also another name for Leviathan, the massive sea serpent of old that represents all the forces of evil that are against God's purposes and rule. Job is telling us in these verses that when the Lord causes the pillars of heaven to tremble, he is doing so in order to defeat the forces of evil in the world. He's taking the worst things in life and turning them into the best things in life. Now, Job is saying something incredibly profound. He's saying that his innocent suffering, his suffering that has made the pillars of heaven tremble, has resulted not in the enemy's triumph, but in the enemy's defeat. God has shaken up the fabric of creation by inflicting him with this unexpected, undeserved suffering so that through it he would pierce the fleeing serpent. In other words, Job knew that his suffering wasn't meaningless. It had a purpose beyond anything that he could ever have imagined. A purpose beyond anything defined in his own life or circumstances. God was accomplishing something mighty to defeat the enemy. Now this leads to our verse, Job 26, verse 14. As Job reflects on God's sovereignty over death, over creation, and over evil itself, he can't help but say, behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? Now if Job could say that, to reflect on his undeserved, innocent suffering and let it lead him to greater worship in awe of the God who is in control of all. How much more should we? How much more should we stand in awe of God when we know not only the story of Job, but we know the story of the one who is greater than Job? Because as powerful as Job's story may be, it is only a shadow, a whisper, of the greatest story of all, the story of another innocent man who suffered. Like Job, this man had people pointing their fingers at him, saying, you sinned, and you're getting what you deserve. But unlike Job, this man was truly innocent. He never sinned, not once. He was the spotless lamb of God. And he didn't just lose his health and his wealth, He lost his very life. He suffered, bled, and died as a completely innocent man. My friends, Jesus is the true Job. No one suffered greater injustices than Jesus. Not you, not me, and not Job. And it was precisely through the injustices that Jesus suffered, that God has pierced the fleeing serpent. He has crushed the head of the snake, God has shaken the pillars of heaven by sending his own son to die on the cross for our sins so that all who trust in him could be forgiven and rescued from the devil's power. The death of the innocent has led to life for the guilty, both now and forevermore. And that is good news, my friends. And that is meant to lead us to stand in awe of this God, who we know and yet we barely know. Christopher Ashe puts it beautifully. He says, Job has grasped that the problem and threat of evil is of such a magnitude that its destruction will involve a shaking that goes to the core of creation, a shaking that is embodied and anticipated in his own innocent sufferings, a shaking that will finally be fulfilled only when the earth quakes at the cross of Jesus Christ. My friends, let us stand in awe of this God this God who is sovereign over Sheol and over Abaddon and over the serpent, this God who creates and sustains creation by the word of his power, this God who crushes the serpent's head by using the serpent's own schemes. It takes infinite wisdom to do that, to bring the highest good out of the worst of evils, but that is precisely what God has done for us in the cross. He has shown that there is none like him, and that none of us can fully understand the thunder of his power. God is worthy of our awe, and yet it is often difficult to give it to him. We want to be awed by God, but so often we are not. And that is why we have put it in our mission statement, to remind us that this is who we are, and this is who God is. We exist to live in awe of this God. let me briefly suggest two things that we can do individually and collectively to foster this heart of awe when it comes to worshiping God. First, I encourage you to guard your attention, to guard your attention. I think many of us fail to live in awe of God because our capacity for awe is being sucked up by the world. We spend so much time being wowed and shocked by the fake world of entertainment that we have nothing left to give to God. I experience this all the time. You know, you may think, this is a pastor, he doesn't watch YouTube. I watch YouTube, my friends, and sometimes it is a deadly distraction. The latest YouTube phenomenon sometimes, uh, I mean, when, when I watch the latest trending YouTube videos, I'm not thinking about how good God is. I'm thinking about how amazing that person is, or how amazing that cat is, or you know whatever the latest viral trend is. We are distracted and we are devoting our awe to things that are passing and fleeting and ultimately meaningless. The reality is that we are finite creatures, and as finite creatures we have a finite capacity for awe. We don't have unlimited quantities of awe to give to the world and then to give to God. If the world gets our awe, God doesn't. In his wonderfully insightful book, Competing Spectacles, author Tony Renke writes this, overconsuming on amusement drains our soul's vigor. Just as my time is a zero-sum game, that is, it is, it is limited, it is not infinite, it is, uh, you either have it or you don't, so is my spiritual energy, my, fe- my affections, and my bandwidth for awe. I love that picture, because it reminds us that we have a bandwidth for awe. If we use it on the world, then we'll have nothing left for God. And that means we have to guard our attention. We have to discipline ourselves to live in such a way that the best of our awe is reserved for God. Well, how do we do that? Well, these are just suggestions. This isn't what the Bible requires, but as I live through trying to guard my own attention, these are some things that have helped. We can stop starting our days off with our phones. We can stop starting our days off with our phones. I mean, usually when I wake up on an average day, within the first 15 minutes of me waking up, I've had multiple shock and awe experiences as I read the news, as I hear about what's going on around the world. I mean, that's often why we read the news. We actually read it because we want to be awed by something. We want to be like, whoa, I can't believe this is happening. You know, the fact fact that we actually have that news doesn't actually benefit us or anybody else. It really just has the effect of entertaining us, to put it bluntly. Well, what if we stopped starting our days with our phones and started with the word? That's how people used to do it. There's no reason why we can't do that now. Let's put away our phones. Or we can take Saturday nights as another example. Growing up, Saturday night was always movie night in my family. You know, you rent a movie from Blockbuster because Netflix didn't exist yet, and uh, you watch a movie as a family, Saturday night, and then in the morning, you wake up, you go to church. Well, I wonder how much of our capacity for awe is being sucked up in those moments. I mean, this visual stimulation of this fake world that we are immersing ourselves in, I mean, it, it, it makes this context much more difficult to engage in. What if we spent Saturday nights instead in silence, going for a walk, or in good conversation with your spouse, or with a friend, talking about God, perhaps praying that the Lord would prepare your hearts. I do this with my kids every night on Saturday night. I pray with them that the Lord would prepare our hearts for worship. We can guard our attention by guarding our affections. You might ask, well, pastor, what about hockey night in Canada? that's a good question. But I can assure you that if you're a Maple Leafs fan, it is unlikely you're gonna have very many many moments of awe. I say that as a Maple Leafs fan. I mean, most of the time, watching the Maple Leafs play is good for my soul because it reminds me that I cannot find satisfaction in anything in this life. The Maple Leafs will always disappoint. God will not. And so, watch Hockey Night in Canada to your heart's content. (laughs) (laughs) Lastly, uh, we want to guard our attention, but we also want to come to God with expectation. We want to come to God with expectation. I think it's a wonderful thing to read your Bible and go to church on Sundays out of routine, out of discipline. That is a wonderful means of grace that God has given us so that we're not just led by what we feel like doing, but we're led by what we know is right to do. That is a good thing. But we also need something else. We need expectation we need to come to God's word and we need to come to God's presence along with his people on Sundays with expectation, not dragging our feet, but eager to respond with awe to who God is and what he has done. And that's not always going to be easy because life grinds away at our souls to the point that just showing up at a church sometimes feels like a victory. I know what, I know what that's like with so many little people in my family That's one of the reasons why I prioritize our pre-service prayer. I mean, not not all of you can make it, but you can pray with your families at home. You can pray a simple prayer that the Lord would prepare our hearts and reveal more of himself and of his glory and lead us to a deeper experience of worship because he is worthy. You don't have to pray with us. You're certainly welcome to pray with us, but you can pray anywhere that you are, with your family or with your friends or by yourself as you cultivate an attitude of expectation, that God will speak to you through his word. Coming with expectation makes a world of difference. We come together not with the expectation that we would be awed by people. There's a reason why we don't have fog lights on this stage or like uber talented people. I mean, I love our worship team. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but I mean, they're, not, they're probably not the kinds of people i want to watch on YouTube, right? Uh, but some of that is intentional. We don't want the the phenomenon, the spectacle of man, to distract from the fact that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith does not come from seeing impressive things. We see through our ears until the day that we stand before God and we see him face to face. Let us grow, my friends, in awe of God. Let us cultivate this in our own lives and in our church that he might receive the worship for which he is due. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of Job, how you've used it throughout countless generations to encourage your people, to feed our faith, to lead us to tremble at who you are. Let us say, These are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him by the thunder of his power who can understand that we might live for you, that we might trust you and not ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.